electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. A summer pause leading right back to interest rate hikes. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says the Fed may pause a rate hike next month, but don't get too comfortable. Important to me is not signaling that we're done. If we were to skip in June, that does not mean we're done with our tightening cycle. It means to me we're getting more information. And kids today, Generation Z, they don't see working for a living quite the same way. Author Susie Welch on fun employment. I think it's about how the newer generations feel about work and about employers. They don't trust them. They don't believe, okay, I'm going to have a job with this company for the rest of my life. Becky Quick is joined today by Mike Santoli and Steve Leisman on the latest debt ceiling dance. Would you say the Republicans have already won in the sense that they have forced negotiations over the budget through this debt ceiling process? haggling over chips in China, a media mogul booed on campus, and much more. It's Monday, May 22nd. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Steve Leesman. Joe and Andrew are both out today. But happy Monday, everybody, and here we go. Got a lot happening today. They've moved backwards. They actually want to spend more money than we spend this year. We can't do that. We all know how big this deficit is. We also know with inflation, spending that $6 trillion, we have to spend less than we spend this year. And now to the debt ceiling. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy will meet at the White House today to resume negotiations. Kayla Tausche joins us now with more. Good morning, Kayla. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, everyone. President Biden spoke to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and proposed today's meeting while en route back from uh, the G7 summit in Japan after talks hit repeated snags over the weekend while White House deputies held talks on the president's behalf. Negotiators met for two and a half hours last night. How did the meeting go tonight? Seen here leaving the Capitol around 8.30 p.m., that after pressing pause on talks on Friday and again on Saturday as both sides' proposals were seen as non-starters. And while today's meeting could produce some positive results, still at issue are two of the most basic tenets of any deal. First, the level of spending, with the White House proposing to keep all spending flat from this year to the next, saving an estimated $90 billion, according to the Congressional Budget Office. And while Republicans proposed an increase in defense spending and then much steeper cuts to other discretionary programs, uh, the length of budget caps is still in play, according to the Speaker. Republicans have proposed 10 years, and Democrats want two. President Biden in Japan said he also wants Republicans to bend one of their red lines, that is, not raising taxes. I'm willing to cut spending, and I propose cuts in spending of over a trillion dollars. But I believe we have to also look at the tax revenues. The idea that 
the my Republican colleagues want to continue the $2 trillion tax cut that had profound negative impacts on the economy from the Trump administration. President Biden says the administration does not have any options to raise the debt limit unilaterally without challenges in the next few weeks. And Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen on Meet the Press yesterday said Treasury would have some hard choices to make about which bills to pay on June 1st if there's no plan that can pass Congress. My assessment is that the odds of reaching June 15th while being able to pay all of our bills is quite low. So there will be some bills unpaid if the debt ceiling is not raised. Yes, and um, many people, including have you decided many which credit bills? Rate, rating agencies. Have you decided which bills um, those are going to be yet? Well, I, look, I, w- I would say we're focused on raising the debt ceiling, and there will be hard choices if that doesn't occur. Becky? Kayla, thank you. Kayla, I, I have two questions real quick. Can you, can you say in dollars at this point how far apart the two sides are? Um, well, I, I think at this point it's hundreds of billions of dollars, if not close to trillions of dollars apart, Steve. I mean, what the Republicans are using as the basis for negotiations is the bill that they passed um, several weeks ago, which Democrats have calculated to be a 22 percent cut to what President Biden proposed in his budget. The Democrats have proposed keeping spending flat, and it really depends on what numbers you use, because keeping spending flat would, you know, it would Conventional wisdom would tell you that that would be essentially a zero percent rise in spending. But the Congressional Budget Office has estimated, you know, these these rises in spending over the next decade. And so they're using that data to say, well, we would cut spending in that case by 90 billion dollars this year, a trillion dollars over a decade. Um, But Republicans aren't buying that and saying the cuts need to be steeper, even as they're proposing an increase in defense spending to pay for, for instance, the war in Ukraine and elsewhere. Would you say the Republicans have already won in the sense that they have forced negotiations over the budget through this debt ceiling process? Um, I would say that, and also at least in messaging, because when the concept of default comes up and the concept of the blame game comes up, you know, every time House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is asked whether Republicans would be to blame if there's a default or whether he has taken default off the table, his refrain is that Republicans have already taken default off the table by passing a bill in the House that would raise the debt limit into 2024 in exchange for um, these spending cuts that they've already proposed and passed in the House. And because he has done that, he's essentially able to, to you know, wash his hands of it and say, we've already done our job. Now, of course, it's not that easy. And everybody else knows that. But to the public, you know, it's a pretty successful message. And even yesterday, President Biden would asked, was asked whether he would shoulder the blame if there was a default. And he said no, because we've been negotiating in earnest and we've brought an honest proposal to the table on the merits. We're negotiating in good faith and we have our own proposal. But he said he understands that there are some, in his words, MAGA Republicans who would want the U.S. to default, would want to tip the economy into recession and cost him the re-election. And he said that's part of their calculus, too. Kayla, thank you. Shares of Micron, meanwhile, are falling after China's cyberspace regulator announced it would ban purchases of some products from the U.S. chipmaker. Authorities said Micron products have failed its network security review and said Micron poses a major security risk to China's information infrastructure supply chain. China chip stocks rose overnight on the news in response to Beijing's announcement. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo told The Wall Street Journal that the U.S. firmly opposes restrictions that have no basis 
In fact, the U.S. reportedly urged South Korean chipmakers not to fill the shortfalls in China if Beijing's ban comes into effect. I mean, effect. this is just paybacks, right? Yeah. Tip for tat. This is the U.S. made its ban on Chinese technology, exactly. and so this is them doing the same thing. Yeah, going after, you know, the, the, the memory chips and, and interesting, the U.S. Uh, trying to convey to South Korea, you know, Samsung, a big competitor to Micron that, you know, yeah, don't help them out here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have a G7 report coming up later? I want to know the extent to which President Biden got support for his hard line yeah. on, uh, with China when it comes to chips. I, 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 I on saw China that. China when it comes to chips. There were some broad statements of you know unity about yes cooperation, okay, but, they, they never used but with Beijing some, and China, they never said it, but it was very heavily, you know. I'm not, sure I'm not sure he got as much support as he wanted out there. Let me read this. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslov. Delivered the commencement address at his alma mater, Boston University, yesterday. His appearance was interrupted by protests by striking of the Writers Guild and their allies who chanted, pay your writers. Some people. Some people will be looking for a fight. Bad timing by David, I think, on that one, right? Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders weighing in on Twitter after video of the commencement speech went viral. He tweeted, if Warner Brothers Discovery can afford to pay its CEO, David Zaslav, $286 million in compensation over the past two years, it can afford to pay its writers much better wages and benefits. Mr. Zaslav, listen to the Boston University students and the Writers Guild. Pay your writers. Coming up. That's Bernie being opportunistic. Yeah, too. right. <laughs> Exactly. Bernie never saw a fight he didn't like. Next on Squawk Pod, Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari, the Fed's crazy battle with inflation, and what's at stake in the debt ceiling talks coming down to the wire in Washington. The reserve currency is determined by investors all around the world. They're voting which economy do they have the most confidence in. And so what happens in these debt ceiling standoffs is it erodes confidence in the U.S. economy, in our U.S. economic system. And it makes our competitors look a little bit stronger on the margin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Awesome, Becky. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Steve Leisman. Andrew and Joe are off today. In an essay out this morning, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says, 
Instead of doubling down on a complex system of rules for banks that provide the illusion of stability, we should adopt a far simpler and more effective solution, more equity capital. President Kashkari joins us this morning. You've been talking like this for a long time. I have. Didn't you have a number like 40 percent? Well, we said for the largest banks, we thought, and this was consistent with the Board of Governors' own analysis. And this is several years ago, right? This is 2016. Before before the recent hit the fan. Before all this, that the biggest banks needed north of 20% real equity capital Mm -hmm. to protect themselves against these shocks that hit the economy. And what's funny in America is that the biggest banks generally have much lower levels of capital than the small banks. Just take Silicon Valley Bank. If they had a lot more capital, their depositors would have been comforted because they could have absorbed their own mark-to-market losses, and we wouldn't be in this right now. Now, banks hate higher capital because it directly limits their profitability and their stock prices, but then we're in a situation where the government, three times in 15 years, has had to run in and stabilize financial markets. But it would also mean less lending, right? I mean, if, if, if they had to hold more capital against those loans, then there would be fewer loans. And the idea of the fractional banking system is you take in a dollar and you lend out, what is it, $12 or whatever the number is. It's, it's not costless. Like everything, there are trade-offs. But we have a, we have a system today that in, three, in 15 years, the government has to step in three times to stabilize the financial system. 2008, 2021 COVID hit, and now 2023 again. That strikes me as an absurd system if that's the balance that we've drawn. What's wrong with the bankers? Why do they put themselves in these situations? Are they stupid? Or, you know, they just know there's not going to be any repercussions against them? You know, you're, you want to make money. You want to have bigger bonuses. You want to have your stock be worth more. So you roll the dice. You don't think it's actually going to happen. I don't think they're actually saying, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to get bailed out. I'm going to roll the dice and the downside's not that bad. It's not very likely. It's not going to happen to me. And then it does happen. And then who's on the hook? It's like the best analogy I have is nuclear power, right? If a nuclear reactor melts down, governments will spend unlimited amount of money to stabilize it, not for the sake of that power plant or their executives, but for the rest of us who suffer the consequences. It's the same situation in financial markets. Let's let's bring it to the current situation. Where are we in this unfolding turmoil that we've had out there? Is What are you hearing from your banks in the Minneapolis area? There's quite a few uh, large financial institutions there. And what are you hearing nationally? Are we past the worst of it? Yeah, in our region, we're seeing very little imprint. I mean, most conversations I have, people say what, they see it on TV, but they're not experiencing the strains in our part of the country directly. Certainly borrowers are not experiencing it. But my experience in 2008 has taught me every time we thought we were through it, every time we said this over smooth sailing, the stress has reemerged. So when I think about this crisis, it really is the outlook for inflation. If inflation continues to be entrenched at a very high level and the Federal Reserve has to keep rates high to try to bring inflation back down to break that dynamic, then the yield curve is going to be inverted for an extended period of time and then these stresses in the banking sector will likely continue and maybe get worse. If, on the other hand, markets are right that inflation is going to fall quickly, then you could imagine policy normalizing, the yield curve uninverting, and then these stresses in the banking sector become smaller. We should just be clear about this, that the inverted yield curve creates direct stress in the banking system, which is supposed to borrow short and lend long, right? Correct. And if long is is lower than, than short, you can't really make money in that system. You create those stresses. But where are you in the 
how do I say this, the planning for or the influence of the banking turmoil on your outlook for rates? Is it a time to pause because of that, or is it a time to keep going and fighting inflation? Well, we have to keep going and fighting inflation. The question is, at what rate do we have to continue to potentially raise the federal funds rate? We've obviously raised a lot, five percentage points in the last year, and we are still trying to get data on what are the stresses in the banking sector. You know, others have talked about this a lot. When the banking system comes under stress, that itself can be a damper on inflation. We're not yet seeing the evidence that the stresses in the banking sector are doing our work for us to bring inflation down. But that doesn't mean that channel isn't there. So that's something where I'm open to saying, let's see if we can get more evidence. Are these banking stresses having some imprint on inflation? If they're not, then the job is solely up to the Federal Reserve to continue doing our part to bring inflation down. If the banking stresses are going to bring inflation down, then we should take that on. And so I don't know yet. But Neil, you're a voting member. If you had to vote today, how would you vote? Well, it's a tough thing. Uh, it's the reason we vote every six weeks or so. I think right now it's a close call either way versus raising another time in June or skipping. Some of my colleagues have talked about skipping. Important to me is not signaling that we're done. Mm -hmm. If we did, if we were to skip in June, that does not mean we're done with our tightening cycle. It means to me we're getting more information. Do we then start raising again in July, potentially? And so that's the most important thing to me is that we're not taking it off the table. So what do you think when you see the market <clears throat> pricing in the idea that the FOMC is going to have to cut rates before the end of the year? Yeah, they've been thinking that for a while. And even though uh, we keep getting surprised about how high inflation has been, how entrenched it has been, how slow it is coming down, markets seem very optimistic that rates are going to fall. Now, I think that they believe that inflation is going to fall and then we're going to be able to respond to that. I hope they're right, but nobody should be confused about our commitment to getting inflation back down to 2%. Is it, so 3%, that doesn't cut it for you? 2.5% doesn't cut it for you? If we move the goalpost when we're behind, there's no reason for you ever to trust us in the future. We have to get inflation back to 2%, and then once we do, if we want to have a debate about what's the right target going forward, let's have that debate, but where, we can't where do are it you, now. Where are you at now, Neil, in terms of where, how far do you think the Fed needs to go? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, the, the tough part about June is we have to adopt plot. I'm going to have to put something down. Uh, so far, services inflation seems pretty darn entrenched. I mentioned to you before we came on camera, you know, my flight to New York, not an empty seat. Yeah. And is there any evidence that the services side of the economy is slowing? I haven't seen it yet. Or the jobs market. Jobs market continues to be very strong. I mean, it's not quite as frothy as it was nine months ago. So were you at five and an eighth on your prior SCP? I think I was at five and eighth. No, I was higher than that. I was you higher. Than higher than I didn't that. change it. Yeah. Do you still I, feel good about being higher than that? You know, I. I do mean, I'll just, right I'll just tell you, we, we've seen six percent, six and a half percent. Some people say if you look at the Taylor rule, it tells you you need to go to six percent. Yeah, you know, I mean, the Taylor rule is um, is such a crude instrument when you think about what is changing in the. Hold economy. on, I got John Taylor on the line. John Neal calls it crude. He he knows my views on this. Okay. Um, we're, right now, this isn't, since the seven or eight years I've been on the committee, this is the most uncertain time we've had in terms of understanding the underlying inflationary dynamics. So I'm having to let inflation guide me, and I think we're letting inflation guide us. It may be that we have to go north of 6%. Let's see what happens in the underlying services economy. Let's see what happens in the inflation dynamics. But if the banking stresses start to bring inflation down for us, then maybe 
you know, we're getting closer to being done. I just don't know right now. It's not very helpful. I know if you're trying to bet on what the Fed I is going to do. I think if you're uncertain, you're uncertain. Well, we have a few it's weeks, right? to know that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you mentioned the inverted yield curve, which has been that way for, for some time at this point. Also, you know, things like the leading economic indicators. A lot of things are giving people uh, in the market some confidence that we have the conditions in place that lead to recession, a broader recession, which may also be why the market is sort of anticipating a cut down the road. How much weight are you putting on those kind of prospective signals in this cycle? We look at them. I look at them. Um, I don't put a ton of weight on them. You know, markets, financial markets, those same indicators didn't see high inflation coming. Neither did we. So financial markets can be wrong and can be surprised. And then I go and I balance it when I travel around my region. And my, the Ninth Federal Reserve District is not the whole country, but most sectors of the national economy are represented in our district. There's very little conversations about a weak job market, about a real fall off in demand, about prices starting to flatten out. It still seems to be a robust economy from what I can see as I go out and visit with businesses. How do you prepare at the Federal Reserve for a possible default on the debt ceiling? Uh, a lot of conversations happening behind the scenes on what parts we could do to try to uh, s- keep the financial system resilient, but we, uh, we absolutely cannot protect the economy against a recession, you know, from a debt default. When I travel around, one of the most common questions I get from audiences is, are, am I worried about the dollar and the dollar being the reserve currency, not just about the debt ceiling in general? And what I always tell them is, the reserve currency is determined by investors all around the world they're voting which economy do they have the most confidence in. And so what happens in these debt ceiling standoffs is it erodes confidence in the U.S. economy, in our U.S. economic system, and it makes our competitors look a little bit stronger on the margin. So if Europe, Europe has its own challenges, China has huge challenges, but it's a relative game. And so Europe can get stronger or we can weaken ourselves. This type of brinkmanship weakens ourselves relative to our global competitors. I, you know, aside from, you know, the globe kind of voting as to which economy is the most stable and trustworthy, I mean, Treasury securities are like the water in the pipes of the global financial system. I mean, I think a lot of people here don't recognize that that role right there. So if you if you have right now these contortions with short term Treasury bills, you know, having a much higher yield than you would otherwise think because of this, we may miss a payment. Um, I mean, have you modeled out how that would play? It's very hard to model out something like that. It's like uh, trying to model out the Lehman event and how that, it seemed like the first day, okay, it was kind of bad, and then it got really bad over the next several weeks. Um, One of the things that we just keep learning over and over again, all of our modeling is helpful to do, but it never actually captures the underlying dynamics that hit us. And it always hits us in a way that we aren't expecting. Do you have a a break the glass sort of emergency plan if they do default? What happens? Would you still raise rates in June if that were the case? You know, I'm not going to speculate on what. uh, I'll just defer to our chair who has said, uh, Jerome Powell, that we just do not have the tools to protect the economy against this event. There was a break the glass plan back in the last time it happened. And they don't like to talk about it because it makes the politicians seem like. Like they have an out. Like they have an out. Talk about outs. It always struck me that in order to bring down inflation, you have to have the monetary authority doing the right thing and the fiscal authority doing the right thing. There's been no help at all from the fiscal authority. Why don't you guys make more of that, that you can't fight inflation on your own, just as certainly as you couldn't fight the pandemic on your own? Well, I mean, first of all, we do try to stay out of the specifics of fiscal policy. 
but we do say very clearly that whatever fiscal policymakers do will be an input into our forecast of the sure. economy, and then we have to adjust in response to that. And many of the challenges we've been seeing, whether it's the war in Ukraine, that's been a big contributor. Right. The fiscal authorities are doing what they can to support Ukraine and try to win that war. Uh, supply chains is another factor. COVID is another factor. Uh, there have been a lot of dynamics that have led to this high inflation. And I do think in some dimensions, the fiscal authorities are doing what they can to, you know, COVID, knock on wood, is mostly behind us at this point. Right. That helps a lot. Do you see inflation coming down? What's your, what's your outlook for inflation? I do see it coming down. I mean, I do think we're committed. The good sector of the economy is inflation has fallen quite a bit in the goods economy. Housing, we know, should be coming down. New leases have come down. It's right now the underlying services part of the economy, which is stickiest. And we're going to have our work to do to make sure that that gets back into balance. What about the possibility of recession and what you would do as a policymaker if there was a recession? Would you be cutting rates if there was a recession? That's too simple an example. It's, it, too many factors would have to go into determining whether cutting rates was the right uh, response, depending on how deep the recession is, what sectors of the economy are getting hit. You know, last year, a year ago at this time, the debate was, are we in a recession right now? First two quarters, negative GDP prints, while the job market continued to create jobs hand over fist. So could we be in a technical recession with still a strong job market? I would look at that scenario very differently than if we're in a recession and the country is shedding jobs at a very rapid pace. And if pace. inflation was still high? And if inflation was still high. I mean, all of these things would have to go into You wouldn't necessarily cut rates if inflation was still high and there was a recession? Not necessarily. I guess we've got to leave it there, folks. Neil, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's always good, good to be with you. Cheese will be next. For Generation Z, unemployment can be a blast. With the summer coming and college graduations underway, some young people entering the workforce are going to enjoy what they call fun employment, like mountain climbing in Peru or a vegan sanctuary in Madrid. No, I am not joking. It is the topic of a buzzy Wall Street Journal op-ed by author Susie Welch. I think it's about how the newer generations feel about work and about employers. They don't, they don't trust them. They don't believe, okay, I'm gonna have a job with this company for the rest of my life. Squawk Pod is back in a moment. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick, Steve Leisman, and Michael Santoli. Here's Mike. For the young members of Generation Z, unemployment can be a blast. Susie Welsh explores the mindset of young workers in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. She joins us now. Susie is an NYU Stern School of Business Management practice professor, Brunswick Group senior advisor and CNBC contributor. Susie, great to see you. So uh, explain how you encountered this concept of fun employment. It happened in a... Uh, it happened in a typical class. I was teaching my MBA students, and uh, one student was talking about what she would do after graduation, and she said, well, I don't have anything just yet, um, but I'm just going to do some fun employment. And at first I thought, well, I must 
be mishearing her because she put the words fun and unemployment together. And I literally screamed. I was like, what, what, what? Stop. And the whole class burst into laughter. And they're like, yeah, fun employment, you know, like unemployment when you make it fun and you just sort of do it between jobs. And I was like, stop the class right now. Uh, and they uh, told me all about it. And so this would be joblessness by choice mm. for periods of time, or is it, um, is it a little more loose than that? It's, it's looser. It's more of an attitude, which is that, okay, I'm not going to be the way your generation was about unemployment. I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be frantic. I'm not going to, uh, you know, lose my mind about it. If I'm unemployed, I'm unemployed. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to have a great life. And uh, I'll go to my next job when I get my next job. But until then, I'm going to enjoy it. I, I just as far away from uh, what I remember, uh, you know, in that era myself. Is it because we have such a strong job market right now that they can do that? I mean, I, I remember being panicked of ever being out of work because it's like, how do you find a job when you're out of a job? Yeah. It's much harder. Becky, I don't think it's about the strong job market at all. I think it's about an attitudinal generational change. So, And they don't actually perceive the job market as strong. They're frantic. They want to get a job. They often take jobs um, that are not exactly right for them to get a job. So I don't think it's about that. I think it's about how the newer generations feel about work and about employers. They don't, they don't trust them. They don't believe, okay, I'm going to have a job with this company for the rest of my life. They think we're going to be together for as long as we're together, then I'm going to be fun employed, and then I'm going to move on to my next uh, engagement. It's a little like the gig economy that people, say, in Hollywood have done for you know decades. They're not, it's not so much about I can get a job when I want one. It's like I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it, and the man is not going to tell me how Do to they think it. this until they have kids? I mean, is, is that like the, you know, uh, it's interesting. Of course, my students are MBAs, and they, most of them do not have children. Occasionally, there's one with children. I mean, when I wrote the piece for the journal, there were there was quite a bit of activity in the comments, and it was all about wait till they get a mortgage, wait till they have kids, then they're going to wake up and experience real life, and all of this will change. And and maybe maybe it will, but. Until then, I mean, they don't have kids until they're in their 30s anyway, so we've got some of this to come. But there is also uh, a little bit of uh, resonance in just other things we're hearing about how people are, are viewing work. Uh, yeah. Through the pandemic, either you want to work from home more or you're not willing to, you know, keep the job if, you, if they require you to go back in the right. office or, or all of that. It's definitely part of a piece of, uh, of working from home. So I always do this informal survey every semester. How many, how many days a week do you want to be in the office? And I say five days a week. There's never any hands. Nobody wants to go back to that model. Nobody of my students at four days. You really start to see hands at three days. The most of the hands go up at two days. And I still have hands showing at one day. And then I say, who never wants? to go back in and you get some hands. So it's definitely part of this feeling like, why would we put our trust and our energy and our commitment into our employer? They're not putting it back into us long term. That, that, that's a fair trade right. to say, look, we're not going to give our loyalty to places right. that aren't giving us loyalty. But I, I can't help but worry that they're going to be behind the behind the eight ball at some point because they, they won't have the savings, they won't have the retirement accounts, they won't have those things. Would they have those things if they stuck around, stuck around at employers or are employers not giving them any of those things anyway? I want to go up to 20,000 feet for a second because they also have part of this generational mindset. The world may not be around that long because of climate change, Ugh. because of some disaster. And really there is this attitude like the future, how long is it going to be? We have to but live Susie, in the turn, moment. Turn that around because it is not a fait accompli that Gen Z will not trust their employers and give them loyalty if employers understand that and start to make changes to what they're doing in order to gain that loyalty. 
Many Nobody talks about that. Many employers have made those changes. Okay, I think that if you have Gen Z children, you see what their employers have done to accommodate them that not like experiences that I had as a young right. working person. I think that they have. Many big companies and successful companies are meeting them where they are in terms of work from home and experiences in the office and understanding about uh, you know um, emotional stuff going on. You can take a day. You can have a day to process that and and so forth. I think that more what's going on is that they feel like they're never going to be with an employer long term. It's just not the way the economy works. You can love your company and they could still lay you off. And so I'm not sure that it's in any way about the companies needing to meet them where they are. It's more about a, just a generational shift. I don't know I don't know anybody who goes into any job and says I'm going to stay there long term and in fact most of them But the companies brought that on themselves, right? They well, are the ones who let people go. You know, and, and, and created that whole atmosphere, right? Well, some did. I mean, some companies laid people off because they felt like they had to. And I, I don't know if any companies, though, are, pro are promising anybody long-term employment. In fact, recruiting, when uh, consulting firms come in and recruit, they, they say, work here for two or three years and then go on to your next thing. This is You'll do a lot of learning. You'll have a great credential. We don't expect you to stay here forever. They're, they're, they're saying it right out. I'm sure you've heard, whether in the comments or somewhere else, people saying, well, look, this is a group. They're getting NYU MBAs, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to have options. They can afford to kind of yeah. not necessarily rush into uh, the first kind of rat race job that they yeah. want to do. And, and I imagine it's also cyclical because we're not that far removed from five years ago when Silicon Valley startup culture was you're never not working. Right. You know, I actually uh, didn't want to just take it to be my own MBA. So I asked around and I, 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 I poked around to see how widespread this was. And I was amazed that there was this sort of quiet culture of everybody talking about fun employment. And I actually what I was really curious about was, is this just the kids who've got money from their folks? Right. And so I found some some of my students who are on scholarship and I said, do you know about fun employment? What do you think about it? How do you make it work? And the answer was, you just do, you know, you don't do this forever. And they have an attitude about money that is part and parcel of what we've been talking about. It's like that, it's very rare to hear a student say, I just want to make a ton of money. Back when I was in business school, people were quite open about that being a goal. And everybody was like, okay, you know, that's what we're here for. That is not what students they, generally are, are there for now. They're there to make meaning and to have lives of impact and to give back. I mean, at least... That's what they say. Do I'd they like live to at home them. with their parents? I mean, well, how do they pay the bills? I, you know, obviously some of them are getting a lot of help from their parents. Um, they don't live, they're students from all around the world, so they don't live with their parents. And then many of them step into these jobs where they're making nearly, you know, $200,000 a year if you go into consulting. So they may be living kind of close to the margin right now, but they know the gravy train is coming. I'm always, I don't know to go, I'm always skeptical that one generation is different from another generation, all things being equal. Yeah. So it just strikes me there's some economic thing that's at, root, at the root here. Is it, is, it the, is it the inheritance they're getting? Is it the job market? There's something, no, no, people are the I, same. I, I think it's bigger, I think it's actually, this is different. Like I like to say also, oh, we're all the same underneath it all, but I actually think something really different is going on here. And it's a, like, I really cared about work. I still care about work. Work came first. And they just, it's not central to their lives. That's actually a change in the zeitgeist. I think maybe that will change in, in, in 10 years when they have kids, but right now they've got different attitudes. Yeah. Susie, great to see you. Wonderful to be here. Susie, well. Thank you. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for starting your Monday with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and do us a favor. Tell a friend to listen to. Spread the word. And we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.